All right, and welcome back, Bible readers. We are in week number five of our Rooted podcast. Um, This week covers the days of January 26th through February the 1st. And in this week's reading, you actually get a day off. Um, As we finish the book of Exodus and head into the book of Leviticus, you get a day off after you finish Exodus. So this week we'll be finishing the second book, second half, excuse me, to Exodus, beginning in chapter 23, verse 14, and finishing through chapter 40. Last week, as we left off, we left off with the Mosaic Covenant proper, as it's found in Exodus 20 through 23. The last part of chapter 23 is where we will start this week. And so there were three times a year wherein all male Israelites had to appear before the Lord, making a pilgrimage to the tabernacle. Women and children would have naturally accompanied these men. And the requirement here fostered the national and social unity of the 12 tribes, as well as their spiritual unity. So those days in which they appeared before the Lord were important. And those three times are all involved with special festivals. The final portion of chapter 23, God speaks to the Israelites about their future in the promised land. And he gives them some promises and commands related to their conquest, along with encouragement that he would also be with them in the form of the angel of the Lord. And he also warns them about the idolatry that they will find in the land. You know, idolatry is a theme that God warns his people about time and time again throughout the Old Testament. I feel like it's God's hobby horse uh, of sorts, this sin of idolatry. In fact, in the Ten Commandments, the very first one, is concerning idolatry. And it seems that Israel couldn't get past the first commandment. And there's a reason for it, because all other commandments are an outworking of that first one. Idolatry uh, is a fundamental issue for any believer because it dictates your worldview. A Christian's worldview is wrapped up in the person of Christ, not some other person or life pursuit. And so the nation of Israel struggled their entire existence, as do we, I might add, to put God first in everything. If they had just obeyed this one commandment, their existence would have been so much easier, more fruitful, and even more successful. In addition to this, God also told the Israelites that he was not going to drive out the inhabitants of the land in just one year or at one specific time. It was going to take time. You know, obedience to God is not a one-time decision. It's a day-by-day trust in Him. It's a lifetime of obedience. And so God conditioned all that He promised to the Israelites as an inheritance that was based on their obedience. And understand that this is not a salvation issue. We must be careful not to equate entering the promised land with saving faith in Christ. We'll talk more about this issue later on when we get to Numbers chapter 13. So moving into chapter 14, excuse me, into chapter 24, God ratifies the covenant with the people of Israel through means of a covenant ceremony. A ceremony usually included a formal meal that testified publicly to the binding nature of the agreements between both parties. And the leadership of Israel ascend the mountain, but only Moses was allowed close to God. And after the ceremonial meal, Moses goes into the presence of God to get the tablets as well as additional instructions about Israel's worship. How are a sinful people to approach God? That's the question that we need to ask here. This is the purpose of the tabernacle and later the temple. 
there is a prescribed way to approach God. Today, however, because of Christ's once and for all sacrifice, we can approach God at any time. And you know what a blessing that is. Now, there's a larger section here about the tabernacle and its service. In fact, the focus of chapter 25 through the rest of the book of Exodus is on the tabernacle, its furniture, its furnishings, its construction, its service, the priests, everything related to the tabernacle is here from chapter 25 to the end of the book of Exodus. And this matter of the proper way to approach God was critical. That's one of the reasons for the tabernacle. Chapters 25 through 31 detail the preparations needed for constructing tabernacle and building all its furnishings. The tabernacle becomes the portable worship center of Israel. They pack it up and they take it with them wherever they go. And interestingly, the tabernacle was also placed in the middle of the camp with three tribes camping on each side of it. This was a visible reminder that God desires to dwell in the midst of his people the very center of his people. He wants to be there. And in a similar way today, the Holy Spirit dwells within us. He goes with us wherever we go, like the tabernacle would go for the people of Israel. As you read through this larger section about the tabernacle, Moses uses four different terms to describe the tabernacle. Each term emphasizes a specific purpose. First, he calls it a sanctuary which is a term that means place of holiness. It stresses the simple fact that God is holy and he is transcendent or he is far above us. Second, he calls it tabernacle, the name that we use most when referring to it, which means dwelling place and emphasizes God's desire to dwell near his people. Third, he calls it the tent of meeting, which stresses the fact that God met with Moses and the Israelites in this tent. It also stresses a deliberate meeting rather than a chance meeting or an accidental meeting. Uh, It was a set place where they would meet. Fourth, he calls the tabernacle the tent of testimony. And this indicates the law or covenant purpose that God has with his people. In fact, the Ten Commandments are the testimony, the heart of the relationship between God and his people. The first piece of furniture that God required the Israelites to make for the tabernacle is the most important one. It's called the Ark of the Covenant, or sometimes it's called the Ark of the Testimony. The Ark was the throne of God where he dwelt in a localized way and met with the Israelites through their high priest. The Ten Commandments were placed inside the Ark. And God's relationship with his people quite literally rested with the Ten Commandments. There was a lid for the ark called the mercy seat. And on this mercy seat, the high priest would offer a blood sacrifice for the sins of the people once a year. It was called the Day of Atonement. And the mercy was for the Israelites temporarily what Jesus Christ is for all people permanently. So think about that. The mercy seat was for the Israelites temporarily what Jesus Christ now is for all people permanently. There's not a priest that goes in once a year to offer sacrifices anymore because Jesus Christ was the once and for all sacrifice. The second piece of furniture was the table of showbread. And the priest would place 12 loaves of unleavened bread in two rows or piles on this table where they remained for seven days. They substitute fresh bread for old bread each Sabbath day, which was seven days. 
The 12 loaves constituted a perpetual thank offering to God from the 12 tribes for the blessings they received from God day by day. Of course, in the New Testament, Jesus is the bread of life. He is the one who provides for our needs on a daily basis. The lampstand was the third piece of furniture in the tabernacle, and it weighed about 75 pounds and was beaten out of pure gold. And the seven-armed menorah is what is also referred to. The wicks of the lampstand were trimmed each day and filled with oil every morning and lighted every evening, burning throughout the night. And so the practical function of the lampstand is to shed light on the tabernacle's interior so that the priests could see what they were doing inside. But the description of the lampstand was like a stylized tree. It seems to push our memories back to the Garden of Eden and the Tree of Life. However, as with all the tabernacle furnishings and structure, we must be careful not to press exact correlations or symbols. But we do know that Jesus is both our life and our light. Now, chapter 26 deals with the tabernacle structure. This chapter talks about the curtains, the framing and the beams, the veil that separated the holy place from the holy of holies, the screen-like entrance to the holy place. A lot of the furnishings are discussed in this chapter. The tabernacle structure was rather small, if you think about it. I mean, the holy place was 30 feet by 15 feet by 15 feet high, and the holy of holies, where the Ark of the Covenant was, is, is, is about a space of 15 feet cube. So think of it in these terms. The tabernacle structure was about the size of a two-story living room. Even the tabernacle structure is wrapped up in the person of Christ. John chapter 1, verse 1 says, The Word became flesh and dwelt or tabernacled among us. God the Son became a man so he could come down to earth and tabernacle with us or dwell with us. Jesus is the sacred space where heaven comes down to earth so we can touch the face of God. And unlike the first tabernacle, Jesus is not made of silver and gold and linen and wool and skins. Rather, he is made of flesh and blood, skin and bone. And all this is joined to the divine nature because despite his humanity, Jesus retains his deity as God the Son. Chapter 27 is about the courtyard. And a fourth piece of furniture that's mentioned here in this chapter is the altar of burnt offerings. And this piece of furniture would be in the courtyard. This altar received the offerings of the Israelites. So it's safe to say that this altar got constant use. And the position of this large altar just inside the entrance to the courtyard made it clear that the beginning of fellowship between God and man must be in sacrifice. The book of Hebrews viewed this altar as a prototype of a better altar, which is Jesus. And as for the courtyard, it was half the length of a football field with the tabernacle itself inside this courtyard. So the, court, the courtyard acted much like a fence, and it's safe to say that the courtyard was a rather large area with lots of activity inside it. Now let me just stop for a minute and just say there are good illustrations, good maps, good diagrams of the tabernacle 
um, out there on the internet. You can search for them. Uh, you can get it in some chart resources if you have them. A good Bible dictionary might have them. As I'm describing these different pieces of the tabernacle and where they're placed, um, a chart of that fashion might be helpful as you're reading through these passages. Chapter 28 and 29 describes the priests and their garments. Aaron had already been functioning as a priest. Now Moses officially appoints him and his sons to the office. And the priests had an official dress when they served in the tabernacle ritual, but they were not allowed to wear that garment or that dress at any other time. Specific garments for the high priest were a robe over which the ephod was placed, a breastplate, a tunic, a turban, a sash. I don't have time to go into detail about these garments. Again, as I mentioned earlier, a good Bible dictionary uh, or a good book of charts will give a better explanation or a visual representation for these types of things. There is also a ceremony in which the priests were consecrated for service. The ceremony lasted for seven days. And we'll read later on about this in Leviticus chapter 8. Moving on to chapter 30, we come to the fifth piece of furniture, and it's called the Altar of Incense. It was located in the holy place, and the priest would offer incense on this altar each morning and each evening, and the incense would burn constantly. So, was there a practical purpose for the altar, you might ask? With all the slaughtering of sacrifices, no doubt the odor would have been overpowering without some kind of incense. Most believe that the altar of incense was to be viewed as an altar of prayer. In fact, if you read Psalm 141 or Luke chapter 1, it seems to give evidence that it was used in this sense. The last piece of furniture described is the bronze laver, and it was a large bowl-like reservoir for the water that the priests used to wash with as they performed their duties. It stood between the altar of burnt offering and the tabernacle proper. So its presence symbolized that cleansing is necessary after making atonement and before enjoyment of fellowship with God. So all the pieces of furniture as they're placed in the tabernacle, in the holy place, in the holy of holies, all are strategically placed for a specific reason. Because God doesn't do anything just because. He has a reason for everything he does. Now, in chapter 31, God appointed men who would be responsible for interpreting Moses' instructions about the tabernacle and constructing it. The text says that he filled them with his spirit so they would make choices consistent with his will. And chapter 31 also included the Sabbath law and the regulation there. And after God had finished delivering instructions to Moses, he gave the Ten Commandments on tablets of stone written by God himself. Now, all that good instruction about the law comes to a climax here in chapter 32, because down on the bottom of the mountain, the Israelites are not patiently waiting. As Moses is receiving God's prescribed method of worship, back at the camp, the people were devising their own system of worship. It's always been hard for God's people to wait for him, when Moses lingered on the mountain, the people were ready to replace him. And in spite of the law and in spite of the awesome power of God and his total conquest of the gods of Egypt, Israel fell quickly back into idolatry. Aaron, of all people, makes the golden calf and the people worship it. 
when Moses comes down off the mountain, he disciplines the people for God and interceded with God for the people. And thousands die because of this event. And even though the matter was settled, this incident would be an ominous indicator of what lay ahead for the nation. Now, what's interesting about this larger section of Exodus 25 through 31 that we've talked about is that it parallels the creation account of Genesis 1 and 2 in many different ways. And I wish we had time to look into all those parallels, but I at least wanted you to know about it, and you can study that on your own. Now, as we continue on into chapters 35 through 40, they speak specifically to the construction of the tabernacle. A free will offering from the people is what financed the tabernacle, and more than enough was received. In fact, Moses had to tell the people to stop bringing money, stop bringing gold and silver and the things that were needed because they had more than enough. And the materials were given to two craftsmen, and their name is there in Exodus 31, verse 2 through 6. Basileel and Ohiliab, I think is how you say it. You can pronounce it how you want. It's in there, Exodus 31. And these were two craftsmen who were actually to put the tabernacle together. Think about having that job and the responsibility and the weight that laid on your shoulders of you had to construct the tabernacle. The three main sections of the tabernacle, the courtyard, the holy place, and the Holy of Holies separated three different kinds of worshipers. We encountered a similar situation back at Mount Sinai. Only Moses was allowed to go up to the mountain and meet with God. He was the mediator, the man who represented the people before God. The elders were allowed to approach God and even commune with him, but they could only go up halfway. Then down at the bottom were the rest of the people who were not allowed to approach him at all, but had to stay off God's holy mountain. The tabernacle itself was structured in a similar way. Only the high priest could enter the Holy of Holies. He was the mediator, the man who represented the people before God. The rest of the priests were allowed to go halfway. They could enter the holy place, but not the Holy of Holies. The people were kept outside. They could only go into the courtyard, but they were not allowed to enter the tabernacle itself. Now that the tabernacle was constructed and the law was given, was time to leave Mount Sinai and head to the Promised Land. But before that could happen, Moses will give instruction about the kinds of sacrifices and offerings that the people were to offer. And there were also celebratory days that the nation should observe. And these sacrifices and offerings and special feast days are all detailed for us in the book of Leviticus. So the book of Leviticus will be the subject of our podcast for next week. Now don't forget, all of Scripture is important. All of Scripture is inspired. Timothy tells us in chapter 3, verse 16, all Scripture is given by inspiration of God and is profitable. So even the book of Leviticus, as strange to our Western hearing and eyes that it might be, it's still profitable genealogies in scripture, while they are tiresome and hard to read and hard to pronounce those names, are profitable. So next week we're going to talk about Leviticus, talk about the reasons behind these sacrifices and offerings, and why the book of Leviticus was an important part 
of the nation of Israel. I hope you've enjoyed the summary for this week. If you have questions, send them to BibleReading at lmbc.org, and I will talk with you all next week.